Welcome to the Art and Life Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Gallegos. This podcast is an experiment in philosophical conversation, intended to inspire hope and inspiration in your creative pursuits. Follow along as I interview creatives from all backgrounds and walks of life. Listen while you work, listen while you create, listen while you dream up your next breakthrough idea. It's possible to make a life from your art, skill, or craft, whatever that looks like. Now, let's dive into this concept we call creativity. Welcome, mi amigos. This is Taylor G back in the house with you. Um, Yeah, today's a good one. Today's a really good one. We got my good friend from back in the day. We were on the same soccer team in middle school, and uh, we stayed friends since then. He is in the U.S. Coast Guard as a mechanic for uh, helicopters, big helicopters. And we're going to dive into all this in this episode. Uh, His name is Andrew Sullivan, Andrew Sully Sullivan. And yeah, he's a legend. I'm very excited to show this to you. Uh, I feel like this one more than, I mean, not even more than any, but this is a great example of how we from different backgrounds, different walks of life actually have so much in common. And that's really the intention of this podcast. One of the intentions the other one's to inspire you, the listener, me, the recorder, uh, the interviewees also. Just inspire everybody to push for being the best versions of themselves. You know, keep going, keep practicing, keep learning. And uh, we talk about that in this episode a lot. So without further ado, Mr. Andrew Sully Sullivan. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Gallegos, and with me today is the legendary, he's legendary in my life, and uh, this close circle of friends of mine, um, yeah, the, the legendary Andrew Sully Sullivan. So, Sully, thanks for being on the podcast today. Taylor, it's great to be here, man. I'm so glad you reached out. Yeah, yeah, me too. This is going to be fun. So, uh, why don't you start out by telling us who you are, where you're from, how you got to where you're at and what you do. There you go. Uh, well, I don't know about legendary, but maybe infamous uh, Sully Sullivan. Um, <laughs> let's see, I'm from Boulder, Colorado. Well, just outside. I grew up in Louisville, not too far from where Taylor grew up. We got, we met, I think, playing soccer back in like the middle school days. Um, and uh, I grew up there playing sports, going to school, knowing Dan Howe and the rest of the crazy group and uh, having a blast. Uh, Unfortunately, for high school, I decided it'd be a good idea to go to boarding school in New Hampshire to play ice hockey. So I took off in high school and went to New Hampshire and New England. I did four years there, ended up in college in uh, upstate New York. And then not long after graduating from college, I decided that it would be fun to join the military. And I ended up joining the uh, United States Coast Guard. Um, And I thought kind of originally that I would do it for a couple of years or, you know, whatever and see if it was any fun, uh, if it was a good time. And I think I got off the bus in boot camp and immediately was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I love this. This is ridiculous. I'm totally down. Uh, and it's been 13 years coming up on 14 years in the military and the Coast Guard. And it's taken me 
back and forth uh, all over this crazy country. Uh, I've been from San Diego to uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, to Sitka, Alaska, Kodiak, Alaska. Uh, the Coast Guard actually took me to the Marshall Islands out in the South Pacific at one point. Um, and then now I find myself in uh, Mobile, Alabama. And my primary job in the Coast Guard is I work on and fly on rescue helicopters. Um, it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I'm thinking about what's moving on next. I'm trying to, you know, I'm growing up and I feel like I eventually have to get a real job. So uh, I'm actually recently, I've just started kind of digging into cyber and cyber intelligence and all that kind of stuff. And so hopefully within the year or two, I'll be picked up for uh, an officer's position and I'll go sit and stare at computer screens. And uh, hopefully that'll set up a cool job when I'm done and and uh, all that good stuff. But it's been a, it's been a pretty fun, wild ride uh, so far. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like so much there that I want to just like unpack. I mean, first off we met playing soccer back in middle school and it was, it was, and you were, you were already like a full grown man by the time <laughs> we were in like seventh grade. And granted I, my freshman year, yeah, exactly. <laughs> my freshman year in high school, I was five foot two and like 110 pounds. Yeah. You were that in like fifth grade. I think I was that in fifth grade, I think, because I hit, I did ever before everybody else. It's funny because I, I remember this was really poignant to me because I remember being in like middle school and being like six foot and being like, you know, 180 pounds or 190 pounds, whatever it was. And I towered over kind of everybody. And uh, when I came back to visit people in high school, you know, shaving already, I had the five o'clock shadow at five o'clock, you know, and, uh, and I remember getting back in high school and visiting because I, I wouldn't see people for, you know, months at a time and I'd visit friends and stuff. And um, I remember how funny it was that everybody started growing past me because they were like all like catching up, like they had finally hit. And so like there was guys that were, you know, shorter than me or smaller than me. And all of a sudden we're like now an inch or two taller than I was. And I was kind of like, oh man, I peaked too early. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was kind of a big guy then. I'm still kind of, now I'm just kind of, I think I'm just getting old and fat now. I'm just rocking the dad bod. So it's, uh, it's all right. <laughs> You look great, bro. You look great. Thanks, bud. Thanks. Um, yeah, and so like, I mean, it was interesting because you were the biggest on the team, you and Dan Howe, who I interviewed yep. recently. And uh, and then like that, I feel like that really led into you playing hockey. You played lacrosse also. In yeah. And like, um, do you feel like there was a, a through line with sports and like excelling at sports and then going into like wanting to go into the military? Because my brother, who was really a great athlete, he had like a similar line of thinking and now he's a firefighter. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a structural element to all of that or? Definitely. Definitely. I don't necessarily say that it has to be, I think it, for me, it was the physicality. Like I loved the idea of being in the military like physically. And I think if I was younger, when I joined, I was older, I was 25 and there was the Coast Guard has some very elite groups, like the rescue swimmers or the top, you know, tip of the spear, if you will, like great, amazing guys that are just, you know, incredible athletes, incredible uh, what they do. Um, so there was that idea that I kind of wanted to be in something special operations wise, but I was a little older, not quite as motivated, <laughs> you know, it was like, ah, no, I'm good doing this. But the real thread for me, kind of what you're talking about was um, not necessarily having to be the physicality of it, like which it was for me as well. But I think the real draw for me was that team dynamic. And it's very few places that you find that in the professional world where you have that team draw, where everybody comes together with that 
purpose of belonging to something that's slightly bigger than yourself. And you know, as a team sport, soccer, hockey, lacrosse, um, that's championship teams is the theme that you're all driving for that one goal and that you're all working together to make it happen. You know, being a part of something bigger than yourself, I don't think there's any anything else more like exemplifying of that than being in the military. Firefighters, police, um, they definitely have it as well, that brotherhood and that sisterhood in there. Um, but I think the military really does that. And so that was always very much a draw for me. There was always that, you know, wanting to be with people. And it, it's funny when you talk to guys that have gotten out, I've had a lot of friends that have gotten out like early or didn't retired. And one of the biggest things that they missed is that connection, that camaraderie, that fact, that kind of driving line that you were part of something that was more than um, whatever that may be. So sports for sure drew that. I think it was, it's not a very, it's not, it's a short line for me to be like, oh yeah, I played sports. I played in college. I, you know, what, what was really important to me was to keep trying to find something that was going to give me that same, always searching for that same fix, if you will, of, of being part of that. So. Yeah. That same fit. And like, I mean, I've been a part of a couple of teams here and there, and there's something that happens when a team gels. Oh yeah. When you go from like a bunch of individuals to being like one unified team, you're like that person, that guy, that guy, we are all like, he's my brother. I got his back. He's got mine. Like we're all going for the same thing. It's like, there's, there's this gelling thing. And when that happens, it's almost like, it's kind of indescribable, but there's like a momentum and a force that moves forward where you, you individually and you as a team look across the field and you're like, you're ours. Oh yeah. We're, we're beating you. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Or just the fact that like, there's not one thing that you can do that the other person doesn't already know that you're going to do or that they can't anticipate or that they don't, everybody's just so kind of one mind. And it's always been incredible to me that, you know, even at a, at a smaller scale in the sports world, especially like in youth sports and stuff as we were growing up in high school and, and, you know, before was that we all came from different walks of life. You know, we all went to different schools, you know, but we all like, we're great friends on the field and we all played and we all like had a blast and we always knew, you know, if you think about it and how much, you know, like where the other teammates going to be, especially in like soccer where like, I remember Lobos where you would be, you know, you played together for three, four years, you know, constantly always on the same teams. It just, you just moved up together. And uh, there's something about that. And the military is like that, you know, like most of the guys in my world, because the Coast Guard is actually really small and aviation, Coast Guard aviation is even smaller. Um, there's guys that I've been stationed with, you know, two or three times or, you know, and we, the way we train. And so when you go out and there's that big case, there's that big problem. Uh, there's that big rescue at two o'clock in the morning and, you know, all hell's breaking loose and, you know, the wind's going to rip off the helicopter out of the sky and, you know, and stuff like that, you have that confidence of knowing that, that your team is always going to be there and everybody's going to have your back. So. But. Totally. Yeah. totally. <laughs> have you uh, heard of the book stealing fire? I want to say I have, but I don't know. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Did you, I don't know if you talked about it recently or I heard it recently, but I don't know what it is. Go ahead. I've, done, I've been talking about it a lot lately. It's my favorite book right now because the concept is all about flow state. And I'm right now, I'm kind of obsessed with flow state, how like get, you get out of your mind and into your, like you just beat, you know, it's the zone. It's where you, you stop thinking and like time slows down and things just click and work. And you're like, complete single-minded focus and in the book uh he goes over all these examples of different ways of getting into flow state but the, he starts out talking about this navy seal team 
and how like uh you know they're on this midnight mission and uh it just like they all click into place and they're like reading each other's minds almost it's like yeah. i mean I'm just, is that what you've experienced in those 2 a.m like rest? definitely yeah definitely i had a my first ever really big legitimate like the reason you joined the coast guard to become a flight mechanic case was in alaska and um I don't know what this does to your flow state, but there's alarms that go off. Like when you're, so you're sound asleep on, on duty, you're on duty for 24 hours and you're sound asleep in your rack or you're in the, in the, in the bunkhouse or whatever. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> the alarm goes off. And to this day, there's certain sounds that I hear that cause my blood pressure and my heart to just go through the roof. Like I just, you just tense up and like immediately you like, you look, you're like waiting for the next, like, you know, sound of what's going on. And, so about two two thirty in the morning and in the summertime in Alaska, the alarm goes off and you know you fly out of bed and you're like throwing your gear on and you're getting ready to run down to the helicopters and um, this one was a you always hear kind of what the alarm is and most of the time you're kind of it's like a medevac or it's like you know searching for a missing hiker or a missing boater so it's something that's not necessarily benign but it's like you you just know that okay it's it's going to be a long could be a long drawn out night you know um, this one was vessel taking on water in the Fairweather fishing grounds, which is in the Gulf of Alaska, about, I can't remember how far, maybe 120 nautical miles away from, you know, Sitka. And they're taking on water and they've lost steering, you know, I mean, they're, they're in serious trouble. And so you're like, oh, oh, oh my God. So you jump in then in a helicopter crew in the Coast Guard is a crew of four. You have the pilot, the co-pilot, the rescue swimmer and the flight mechanic. Um, and so, you know, immediately, you know, we jump in the plane and, you know, from the time the alarm goes off to the, to the time you're in the plane, the plane's turning up is probably, you know, 10 minutes maybe. And uh, we take off and the wind, it was like a bad, it was stormy. It was like, it wasn't like a stormy, like really rainy or anything like that, but it was like a bad, like, like kind of weather was coming in. So there was really big, heavy winds. It was like 40 knot winds. The sea states were, you know, 15 to 20 foot seas with like, you know, intermittent rolling 25s and bigger and, <laughs> and you know, sure enough, you get on scene and you're this, I mean, just all you see is whitewash. And this boat is all messed up and like half, you know, sunk in the water and there's two guys on it. And, uh, and I remember out there because we train so much, like everybody's got their job. So the pilot, co-pilot's doing something. The pilot's obviously flying the helicopter, the rescue swimmers like prepping gear, I'm prepping gear. And you're just kind of like, there's just that steady state and you're making calls. Like there's like a call checklist in your head that are being talked about by everybody. And just without thinking about it, you're just kind of like a machine. You're just da, 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 just doing it. But I remember in my heart, you know, at the moment, knowing that this was like legitimately going to be a big deal. Um, you're frantic, like your heart's racing like a thousand miles an hour and you're just trying to like catch your breath or stay calm. And, and uh, sure enough, we got on scene and we ended up having to hoist the guys out and, you know, and there was problems like, you know, the the wind and the the, the sea state and the the current that was going on was, you know, it took a while to actually get the people into the basket, like in the swimmer in the basket and get them lifted into the helicopter because they just kept like getting moved around. It just seemed like forever, but it wasn't that long. And, uh, but everything in that moment, four people, you become one, you know, and in, in the hoisting world, when you get into that point, I'm actually flying the helicopter. I'm actually telling the pilot where I need him to be because he can't see like what the hoisting is. The hoist is in front of me and like, you know, almost like directly behind, well, not directly behind, but behind the pilot. And so when you get into that rhythm where you're putting stuff down, the pilot and I are, have to be one. So everything that I'm conning him, everything I'm telling him, forward and left, you know, forward and right, 10, 
Gordon Wright five, hold, you know, back and left, you know, you're constantly, he has to do what I'm telling him. And so they're very much, very quickly is either if you're in sync, it's perfect. If you're not, it's a train wreck, you know? And so hopefully you've practiced enough and the catches that the, the way the Coast Guard does it is that you, that anybody can work with anybody. You know, it's not like you're always working with the same crew that you can work with anybody, even in crews from different stations and you're all going to be on that same page. It's kind of like why we're supposedly the best that we are at it, you know? So but yeah, so I've experienced that. and I've experienced other things, but that's the one that always stands out most in my mind because it was a, uh, it was the first and it was crazy and terrifying. And I remember the guy, the last guy, or I guess it was the first, no, it was the last guy we picked up and uh, he came up and they're in full survival gear. Cause it's, I mean, even it was the summertime, so it was still cold, but the ocean was like, you know, I don't think it was above 40 degrees and oh. um, he comes up and he's in a suit and he's a young guy. He's got to be like in his early twenties and you know, his hair is like stuffed under his hood and he's like, you know, wet and frozen. And he's just like, his eyes are the size of, you know, saucers as, as I'm hoisting him up into the helicopter and I get him into the helicopter and he's in the rescue basket and you can't hear anything because the roar of the engines and the helicopter blades and stuff like that. So he's like desperately trying to get out of the basket but like wrap me up in a hug and I'm like, yeah, yeah, dude, we got you. Don't worry. Like get out of my way. I got to get the other guy that's down there like pushing him off and like trying to dump him out of the basket to pick up the rescue swimmer who was still out in the water. And, uh, but that look, you know, that look is, this <laughs> is, uh, you don't forget that when someone has that look on their face, like you plucked me out from dying. Like that was this I'm alive now because of you. It was, it was, I'll never forget that. That was a pretty incredible feeling. So feeling like the crew really back to your question before I die off off into too many tangents, that crew becoming like, you know, and I imagine what the book talks about is that crew becomes one, you know, you, you can't work without anybody with one person missing, but yet at the same time, like you also can't work with the teams, not like in sync. And, you know, I think in the military that comes from training and trust, you know, I think a lot, you know, just constantly training, constantly doing it. And then who you trust, who you fly with and stuff like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, in painting, in art, so what I'm, I'm really diving into being in the studio as much as I possibly can now. And um, even, even though I don't have any, like, I mean, I have little projects here and there, but it's, it's like, I'm just leaning into the time yeah. in there. And in doing that, I feel like what I'm doing is I'm really like getting back to um, like very proficient at all the the basic level stuff, like what solvents I'm using, how much to add to the paint, all these little like all the technical little things. And now that I'm getting back up to speed with that, the bigger level, like longer arc elements of the the, the concept, and and then like the way that the painting comes together, the flow. It's like, and I feel like that's what training does. Is training makes sure that you're not like tripping over your shoelaces so that you can focus on like clearing the hurdle and and like you know that's why like i'm sure you guys like you train on probably like the most little menial tasks regularly and and those things could be could probably feel boring if you looked at them as like that but really like in order for the big big stuff to happen every single little layer of stack needs to be taken care of oh 100 and i'm sure you probably get it too where like if you're working on projects, I would imagine it would be the same for you. If you're working on projects and you're doing the, you know, the same kind of murals or mural work all the time, you probably can get a little complacent, right? Like you might like find yourself like, oh, I've 
done this 50 million times at this point, you know, of, you know, I know exactly what you do and, and you get away with that because you're technically proficient. Like you're really good at what you do, but there's probably times when like you've like something's gone wrong and you're like, Oh crap. I didn't, I wasn't really paying attention because I was doing this. I imagine that happens a lot in everybody's world, whatever it is. That's that kind of that one task that's that you become complacent on. And you're like, I've done this 1200 times. Um, that's definitely like happens in, in what we do too. They try to drill that out of you. They try to drill that, that you're trying to constantly push that complacency away by doing exactly like what you talked about, where you come in and you change your focus, um, where you come in and now you're working in your studio and you're taking your time and you're, you're doing stuff that you probably maybe you haven't done since art school, or maybe you haven't done since like the very first time you're there and you're going over it and you're, you're taking your time and you're exploring different options and you're trying different techniques or whatever like that. They try to do the same thing kind of purposely in my world where there's always that goal to be better, to be more than what you were. And it's hard because it costs time and money to do that. But at the same time, I think they're always trying to drive out that complacency, that, 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 that stagnant or that, you know, where you just get kind of stagnant in something and you don't even necessarily realize that you're, maybe you're not doing it, you know, so. Yeah. And it won't matter in like the day to day when you're just like on the boat, you know, doing your thing, but it'll really fucking matter when you're on the helicopter, everything's going crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. 100%. Thing in the right way, like the whole thing falls apart. And there's stories of that. There's a lot of stories of that in the Coast Guard. There's epic rescue stories of, of things Cause you gotta look at it this way. It's like when you're rescuing someone or when there's like a really big case or it's a really legitimate case, it's like it's not usually when everything's hunky dory and everything's perfectly calm, you know, and everything's going fine. Unfortunately, when we train, we typically only train when everything's like hunky dory and fine. So if you don't have it perfect when it's hunky dory and fine, how are you going to have it perfect when it's an absolute mess out or when the helicopter is not working the way it's supposed to work? or when, you know, you run out of something that you're supposed to be going. I remember um, there were stories of a, a big case in Sitka many years before my case, where they were in the Fairweather grounds again, uh, famous, it's a famous fishing grounds, that's why they call it that, and the Mount Fairweather is there, and it's like the tallest, I think in the mountain in the world from like, it's the steepest vertical climb, random fact of the day, steepest vertical climb in the world. It goes from sea level to like 14,000 feet or 10,000 feet or 13,000 feet or something like that, like in an instant. And there's nowhere else in the world apparently that does this. Um, and it is breathtaking if you get to fly. I've gotten to fly in incredible places. <laughs> I've gotten to see incredible things. Um, but uh, but in this case, you know, they, they were in a case where the sea state was a hundred foot ocean. Like the waves were a hundred feet high. Wait, wait, wait. For, for everybody who doesn't know about the ocean. So a zero foot would be a perfectly flat sea, right? Yeah. Like a, like a glassy calm. Yeah. And then if it's five foot, that means that they're going five foot above that zero and then five foot below that zero also, right? The way that waves right. work. So then a hundred yep. foot is actually like 200 foot faces. Yeah. That's yeah. fucking insane. <laughs> yeah. oh, and this was the, and the book is phenomenal. If you ever need a good read, I'll give you the, the name of it. I think it's like coming back alive or something like that. And, cool. um, but the helicopter was literally having to, to dip into that trough. So like this, their helicopter was below the state of the wave and they couldn't, they didn't want to put the rescue swimmer down because they didn't know if they'd actually get the rescue swimmer back. And so they were trying to literally scoop these guys out of the ocean with the basket 
and the flight mag was the first, it took three helicopters to make this happen. Um, three, like three helicopters going out and back, out and back to like try to get these guys. And um, the, the first flight mech was just so, not, he was a bad flight mech. He was just beaten, you know, just try, he couldn't stay with it. And he got like physically sick that when they had to like basically take an emergency and fly him back, you know, so, and take him to the hospital. And, and, and that kind of goes to show you what you're saying is that like, you know, you have to be prepared when things don't go right. And more often than not, you know, in, in my world, things don't go right typically when something's happening. You look at like yeah, the big hurricane. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very, very few times. I've had a, f- a few cases where weird things have happened when it was like perfectly nice out. But, um, but yeah, that's not, that's not the norm. Um, but I think it makes you better. Like, I think it makes you better in everything you do, you know, especially like in your world where you're, building that you know creative function and you're looking for that thing that's gonna that's gonna be that little piece that's that could change everything and, and i when i look at art when i see anything whether it's you know from you know i'm a i love film and plays and theater and you know and i love artists and painting and stuff like that but you see what it takes to people to do things and like that one little adjustment one way or the other changes in the payment the painting or a perspective or an action and uh i think you find i think you're absolutely right to have this conversation because i think it is in everything that we do uh from everything you know from even from our personal lives we're just interacting with how we interact with people and and you know walk down the street so totally well and this is all making me think about the concept of uh presence so in the last i don't know 10 years i've gotten into yoga and then meditation and the whole concept of meditation is not being in the future that's where like you know thinking about what's going to happen in 20 minutes that might not even ever exist it might not come together so you're in a the state that's not even real or you're in the past connecting to things that already happened that won't ever happen again and you're not right here right now and so like it's cool that what you're talking about um you know like drilling training all these things that like the u.s military does as a practice is actually like the exact same thing as like the yogis the zen buddhists of the east have been doing for thousands of years it's like staying fully present right here right now a yoga practice is the same exact thing there's little variations but it's basically the same thing like over and over and over again and the challenge of it is like how to not get complacent how to be like fully there for every single breath in and every breath out and then you take that same practice out into the real world and then like you know presence with when you're hanging out with your kids you know like are you right here with it or are you looking at your cell phone checking your email or whatever you know like yeah. when you're at dinner with your family, like with your partner, like, are you listening fully or are you multitasking? And are you thinking about like, what are you going to do next week? That's a huge point. I, I, and I love, I got into yoga in college. I did a couple of classes and stuff like that. And I, I don't do it enough, but I absolutely love it for that very reason because it really kind of brings, not only cause I'm old and I need to stretch out constantly, but, uh, but the, it brings you into that that present that center like where where for um and i feel like in my life i do a really bad job of it otherwise like i think i never put the connection together for what you're saying with in regards to the military and training and, and kind of what like a yogi is kind of doing but i couldn't agree more like i think that is actually a very good example of it and a very in a very two different world kind of way but i think it's really very well put together um and it is, it's hard. It's hard to stay present. I think that's something that we need that more often than not. And it is true. Like when I'm hoisting, when, 
while doing the training, like it is kind of like that experience I have when I'm doing yoga because you're smack in the middle of it. And that's all I'm thinking about. Like I'm watching the waves, everything that I've learned in the past, applying that, trying something new, it's training, or I'll watch someone else do something and I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to give that a shot. Or, um, you know, and uh, it's one of the few times probably that at work, especially that I'm probably as present as I am because I'm constantly thinking about what we forgot yesterday, what we have to do tomorrow. Uh, same with my kids. Like, I'm trying to juggle their, you know, what, what, what they're up to, what, you know, you know, what my wife is doing, you know, what, you know, how's that fitting in our schedule? <laughs> if I'm on my phone, distracted, um, you know, yeah, it's, uh, that's, I wish, uh, that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned as of late. It's been on my mind probably over the past couple of years since I, you know, since I had a kid was the realization of trying and wanting to be more present and wanting to like set my phone down, wanting to um, not be stuck at work all day long or, um, and that's a juggle. That's a juggle I think that's become harder and harder in our world now. Yeah, but I think it's really great that, I think that that thought, the fact that you're having that thought is a really great thing. And I think it's a kind of a paradigm shift that's happening in, in parenting in general. Yeah. Like, Parenting in the 50s and 60s is like, send them outside and just like make sure they don't die. Yeah. Now it's like, are you are you listening to what they have to say when they're three years old and they're trying to like express some abstract idea to you? Like, are you gonna yeah. or are you gonna not pay attention because like, if you don't pay attention, there's like there's an effect that you're creating. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There was a uh, Zach Stackhouse. This was a great conversation I had with him. He's a Zach dad. Stack. Yeah. Zach Stack is a dad. He's got a, a little girl, seven, eight, I don't know how old she is now. Um, and I, I, so I struggle with, I, I think a lot about past things, like just in general of who I am. I, I'm very reflective and being like, Oh God, I really screwed that up or I didn't do that test right. Or I didn't do, or I, I said the wrong thing to that person and I made them mad or I really hurt their feelings or, you know, whatever it is being fatherhood is like, tenfold for me because like I really do believe that what we do what we say how we interact with our children has long-term lasting effects um and so I remember that as my oldest has gotten grumpy about things or she's been or she gets she does something wrong or I get on her case about something losing my temper you know and inevitably I wish I was the perfect parent and didn't ever lose my temper and I you struggle with that I think that's just kind of natural for everybody to feel that but I remember I had this one particular moment where I lost my temper and I was like half yelling and really upset with her, like really upset. She's in tears and like, you know, and, and by the time it all settles down, it turned out whatever I was mad about or whatever was going on didn't actually happen. Like I finally put two and two together that it really wasn't that big of a deal. And then I felt even worse that I'd, I'd screwed something up even more. And I took it out on my daughter, like blamed her for it. And she was only, you know, three. So it's not like she really understood what was going on anyway. And I'm conveying this to Zach and he's laughing and he's like, and he's like, well, what happened? I said, you know, I picked her up in my arms and I apologized. And I, I said, daddy makes mistakes and I love you very much. And, you know, and, uh, you know, we will do the right thing next time. And he very aptly, very, very dude, very dude-esque um, pointed out. And he's like, well, that's the thing that makes the difference is that, you know, you was a teachable moment. She's going to remember that more than she's going to remember you yelling at her. And I just was like, oh. <laughs> so how important it was to come back to kind of what you were talking about, come back to the moment, come back to the present, like not being like, not worrying about what had just happened, but being like, what can we do better right now to go forward?
Um, and that was, it's like, now I live that with like my kid, you know, trying to be constantly, uh, you know, knowing that I'm not going to be perfect <laughs> and, and, and constantly trying to be like, okay, what can we do for a teachable moment? Like, how can we re reaffirm her independence and her fun and stuff like this, but still get a point across that, you know, you still have to adhere to dad's rules. <laughs> so. Cool. That makes me think of uh, the idea of like perfection isn't the goal because that's impossible. Yeah. And boring. <laughs> and boring. Yeah. It's like, it's just not realistic. And then it sets these standards and nothing. It's just like, it's not good in any way, but the pursuit of perfection, like that is a good intention because that allows you the, the breathing room to make mistakes, to fix them, to, to like get back on the horse. You know, you fall off the horse. What do you, what's your only option? Either you give up and you go cry or you get back on the horse and you keep yeah. going and like, um, back to yoga and meditation that there's a trick in meditation to bring yourself back into the present. So anytime you feel triggered, you feel like anxiety, depression, like anger, any sort of anything like that, you're getting caught up in your mind in these places. And then what you do, the trick is you take a breath. Like your breath is always there. Your breath is always happening right now. So you can like, you can take a breath in and you can focus on the sensation of the air going in your nose and out your nose and then like you're right here now you're not caught in the past you're like it's a it's a cool little life hack little yoga that's brilliant because i've never heard of that one i've heard of of like when i've been instructors people have said like especially meditation and again i think college was the first time that someone had talked to me about meditation and there was a couple classes that we would do meditations like at the end of the class and they talked about that very same thing if you feel that anxious or that depression or that or just the fact that the pressure of the day like you've got 12 other things coming into your mind that you acknowledge it accept that it's there and then kind of move past it like push it aside or just send it on its way but i always found it difficult because it's like well if i acknowledge it does that mean i'm like that i'm thinking about it again so the idea of focusing on your breath and just the fact that you take a breath and that's all of a sudden brought you back that makes way more sense to me than anybody's ever said before so that's like that is an excellent life hack i will use that and it's funny thinking about it now i've used it without ever thinking about it you think about like you're anxious before a game like that first like butterfly before a game you take that like that big breath to like so focus you down i teach that with my kids like when my kid you know is losing it and she's crying and it's like okay calm your body take it let's take a deep breath ready one two three and like you it stops them from crying or you know if, if you can get through the focus at that point but but it holds them down so yeah that's a that's a brilliant i never really put two and two together it's like brilliance i love it i'm learning give me more put our minds together and really great things are happening here exactly <laughs> And really like by taking that breath, like you said, you know, like you do focus on it, which is, seems like the wrong thing to do, but it's by taking a breath, I feel like it's sort of accepting what is like, okay, let's say there's a problem going on. If you, before you take a breath and you're like in like hyperventilating, like fight or flight, you're like, uh, you know, shit's going crazy. But then by taking a breath and relaxing into it, you say, okay, this is the situation there's a problem over there that I need to handle. And then you can come at it with a relaxed mind. You can be more yeah. about things. You can be present in the moment. You're not like, fuck, last time I messed it up and I did this and that's going to lead to that. And then you like spiral out into like the worst case scenario in your head. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. 
Yeah. Sully, way to, way to bring up all this good stuff. This is great. I knew this was going to be good. Get my nerd, just my nerd, nerd time on. Get my brain, my cerebral brain working. I can't even say the word. So. <laughs> That's good stuff. Um, I did want to mention the time when uh, Haley and I flew in on the 4th of July. This was like one of the last times I saw you. You were in San Diego. And uh, you picked us up from the airport. Fireworks were going to happen in like two hours. You took us to the Coast Guard airport hangar. And, or like the, the helicopter hangar. You took us in, you like gave us the VIP tour of the whole thing. We put the helmets on, we got to sit in the cockpit. Like, that was so cool. That was so I was, cool. I was so glad you guys got to come to that. That worked out so well. Cause I think you hit me up like that day. I think you called me like that day. You're like, hey, we're coming in to San Diego. Can you pick us up? And I was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> It worked out great though, because we got the whole you got the whole show uh, and that spot, the the San Diego spot for watching fireworks from there is like, like that's the that's the primo spot because you get the whole downtown and like all the Bay ones and everything like that. So, but uh, I I love I've been very fortunate. There's been definitely awful times in the military. There's definitely been brutal moments and ups and downs like any job, like any profession. But uh, I've been pretty lucky that I've always pretty much like had a blast and loved it and, and loved getting to take my friends and, and show them kind of the, the world that a lot of people don't necessarily get to see or do. Um, and so it's, it's been a blast. And I think one of the things that's always made the Coast Guard really good for me was having my friends like you guys like come in and visit that, that really meant my friends have always I'm an only child. So my friends have always been like my extended family. So having the guys that I grew up with and the gals that I grew up with come be a part of like my new family in the Coast Guard with people that I genuinely cherish, like that are amazing people that have, you know, given their lives to something, you know, bigger. And uh, from all walks of life, guys that I wouldn't necessarily normally have been friends with outside for whatever reason, just different walks, different paths. And uh, it's the people that have always made that excuse me so getting to bring those groups of people together and getting to share that and see that world i've it's been i'm, I'm obviously very introverted and not very sociable so um so, <laughs> so but, uh, but i've loved having you know having that blast with uh just adding to the families I, I don't think there's anywhere i can go in this country where i don't know somebody where i can't pick up the phone and be like you know hey i'm like so and so hours away from you so let's get together so so i love that you guys got to come in i think that was the first time i met Haley too right i yeah, had to be i think so yeah. So. Now I had a uh, a buddy of mine who's a mechanic on the podcast not too long ago, and he was it was fun to get him geeking out on like telling us about the engine of this car he's building and whatnot. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that helicopter and like what the engines are like and what the flight element like? Tell us some tell us some mechanical shit. Let's see. Let's see if I get any of this right. If, if anybody's listening that actually has real good, I have, so I this, this is a funny thing. So in the Coast Guard, as opposed to some other military branches, like they're in the Coast Guard, it's fixers and flyers, meaning that I work on the helicopter, but I also climb into the helicopter and I go flying like later that day or the next day or whatever it is. Um, in some branches, you're a fixer or a flyer, so it means that like in some cases you won't have a mechanical background really, or you won't do mechanics on stuff and. I kind of like that fact because it gives you a vested interest if like you're working on the helicopter, you're like, well, I'm going to have to fly on this later today. I better make sure I do the job right. Um, and uh, I've enjoyed being a mechanic. It's not a job that I ever, I didn't grow up and go like, I'm going to be an aircraft mechanic. Like that was never across my mind until I joined the Coast Guard. 
um, and it became a means to an end. And often people, people ask me like, oh, what are you going to do after the military? Are you going to go work on aircraft after the military? No, I'm not going to do that. Um, not because I don't want to or because it's not a cool job. It is. It's just not something that really like hurt or like piqued my interest all the time. I've loved troubleshooting. Like when there's a problem and you, nobody can figure it out, I love digging in and trying to be like the mystery of it and trying to do that. And I absolutely hundred percent love flying on helicopters. Um, there's really nothing quite like them, you know, in that sense, there's just so much cool stuff. They, they can fly backwards for God's sakes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so the me mechanical side of it wise, um, I've gotten to do some really cool things. Like I've been a part of, of stuff where we've literally taken the jet engines, you take them off the plane and they get refurbished. And I'm not, because I'm a electrician, essentially I'm an aircraft electrician. I don't do a lot of work directly on the engines. I do a lot of like the cables and wires and lines that go off of the engines, like for um, indicating systems and things like that. But being a part of like tearing off of an APU, which is a, a mini engine. So there's, so in the MH60, we'll talk about the MH60 because that's the one that everybody knows, the Blackhawk essentially. Uh, it's made by Sikorsky and um, they're actually just about done. They're probably not gonna make any more 60s. Um, it replaced essentially the Huey as kind of the military like workhorse helicopter. Um, they've been around since like the late seventies. So they've actually been around a really long time, um, but they're getting ready to change. And there's, I think the Navy is the only one that actually has an active contract left. Um, they are a beast of a helicopter. Um, they look really big. Um, they are really big. They're not as easy to, to move around in, in the inside. It's probably a hundred feet long or something. Yeah, they are like, like 79, 80, 84 feet, something like that long, yeah. like from tip to nose to tail. Um, you can fit uh, the record of like number of people have been stuffed into one of those, I think is like 27 or 28 people. Like when they rescued the Coast Guard rescued, like they had like people like standing on top of each other. Like the flight mech was like stuffed up in the corner, like laying on top of two seats. And um, they ended up landing with so overgrossed grossed weight that they landed in like the strut collapsed on the one side. <laughs> so, but everybody survived. Um, it has two, uh, gosh, what are they called? T-700s? which is like a General Electric uh, jet engines, like turbine engines um, that put out about, I think it's something in the ballpark. Like the, the theory, again, somebody better check me on all this because I'm half of this. I'm just making up as I go here. But um, they put out like a jet engine. Technically, the theory is, is if it's not governed, could like give you like infinite like horsepower energy. Um, but most of the time they're ramped down so that you don't over torque or like spool out. So the helicopters, I think each engine puts out like something like 1900 horsepower a piece. Um, to put that in perspective, like a, a Formula One car, I, I think is like, like six or 700 horsepower, maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe like eight, nine horsepower. So the, just that's a, like, that car is phenomenal. You know, this helicopter, each engine puts out like almost double of like what that car puts out. Um, but it makes sense. Cause I mean, you know, you got a ton of weight to lift those blades. So the way it all works, you know, is the engines spool up the, the drive shaft, the drive shaft attaches to a, a attachment point that attaches into the gearbox, the main gearbox on the, that the main head of the helicopter sits on. And then that gearbox, the jet engines essentially turn that gearbox, which causes the head to turn. Um, wow. Yeah. And then the inputs um, and the sixties all done by like cables and stuff like that. So anytime that the, the pilot, you know, moves the foot pedals or moves the, the cyclic or the collective, which is like the, the power. So the collective increases the power, decreases the power of the engines 
the any kind of that movement goes in, it it's put into this um, swash plate. And there's two, there's one that's rotates with the head of it. And then there's one that sits still and it like rotates like this, which changes the pitch of the blades and changes the pitch horn. So all of this is all going on like instantaneously. And they'll put a, you'll put in a movement to like make the blades to turn the helicopter in one direction or the other or to raise or lower. And that input goes in on one side. And by the time the input is actually felt by the helicopter, it's fully at 180 degrees out. Um, so things are happening very fast and there's really truly a ton of moving pieces. And in the 60 world, there's so many redundancies. So you have three hydraulic systems. You have two, you have a, you know, two main systems, then you have a backup system. Hydraulics is what allows the hydromechanical action. Cause like you couldn't move, like you couldn't move the cyclic or the controls without having some kind of excess, like, you know, help to do it essentially. Well, back in the day, they pretty much did it without it, but it makes things a lot easier not to do it that way. Um, the drive shaft, there's like six different drive shafts that run from the main gearbox all the way back to the tail that goes all the way back there. Um, you know, uh, this is a war machine. I mean, it's a, it's meant for war. It's meant to be take, you know, fire and stuff like that. So the rumor is, is that, it, you know, the, the tail gear, or the tail drive shafts can take like a 50 caliber bullet and still hold together, you know, a lot. Uh, luckily, no, I've never been shot at in a 60. So I, I can't tell you if that's true or not. Um, but because of that reason too, they're, um, they're maintenance hogs. Um, they're incredibly expensive helicopters, I think, to buy. I think that they were like, I think brand new. They're like, I always thought they were like 12 million, but I think they're like $20 million to like buy. <laughs> but, but, the, but the upkeep is ridiculous. And so you don't see the MH-60 helicopter in civilian world all that much because um, they're just so, they're so expensive. So I think right now, as it stands, it's like for every hour of flight time that you put on that helicopter, it generates uh, like 27 or 28 hours of maintenance. So not cheap. No, not at all. And and that maintenance is like sometimes it's because things are breaking, but a lot of it in the helicopter world is preventative maintenance. So a lot of it's like you have to tear things apart and look at it because everything's moving. There's so much movement, so much vibration that you have to be able to say, okay, are these bearings going to hold together? Does this engine need an overhaul? Is this hydraulics lines? Are they okay? You know, um, you know, what needs to be repacked? Um, so I have done my world in the electrical world. We look at a lot of, it really, we change a lot more boxes. We've gotten, as things have gotten more technical in the world, they've actually gotten a little bit more boring. So we don't necessarily open up a box and start like, like soldering a circuit board or changing something along those lines or trying to fix like what's wrong with the box. We just pull the box and do that. So a lot of the stuff that I've enjoyed over the times is when you have a wiring issue, like when the wires exploded or there's a cross short or something like that, you going in and pulling it apart and like finding that wire that's broken and having to replace it. Um, I think recently I had to do something on this new helicopter. When I first got here to mobile, I had to take a rung out of a, like a wire run that was like, you know, eight feet long and I had to find it pull it out of the helicopter and re-solder in and re-put in a, new, a whole new wire. And it had to do with the float systems. So if the, if the helicopter crashed into the water, the, the floats that kind of help keep the, the helicopter floating for at least a couple minutes would work. So you could get out of the helicopter <laughs> above the water. Um, so, you know, everything you do in the, in the aviation world, regardless of whether, you know, and this might be different from like the mechanical guy that was building, rebuilding the engine. Um, everything you do, in the 60 or in the helicopter world has real, real life consequences. Like if you do it wrong 
you know, that if you don't wire that correctly and there's a bad indication or and it or just blows up or turns off and it doesn't work anymore in the middle of a flight, that could be a bad day. If the engine, if you don't hook the engine right, if you, if you, I've been a part of main gearboxes where you have to get a crane. You literally have to bring a crane in and take the gearbox, unhook everything and lift the gearbox because it weighs like, you know, 6,000 pounds or whatever it is, you know, off of the top. I don't think it weighs that much. Um, I should have brought my cheat sheet card. I have a card that's got all this information when we go to air shows and people ask me these questions. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible feat when you see all the guys because it takes an incredible team, you know, to, to work on this. We have mechanics, we call them mechs, they're AMTs, aviation maintenance technicians. And we have tweets, which is what I am. I'm an avionics electrical technician. And uh, so the mechs and tweets, the teams that you see working on these helicopters, uh, they're phenomenal. And you have, like anything, you have some guys that are just phenomenal at what they do. They have such a just nerd out. You look at them and they just like see the mechanics or the schematic of the electricity and they just like geek out and they can just fix a problem and they just nail it. And then you have other guys that are kind of like me that have been doing it for so long. We just understand. We, we've seen the problem before. We know how to fix it and we can do that. And then you get the guys that are just kind of don't care and they just kind of fumbling through as a job and they're going to get out and do something else. But when you watch everybody come together and fix something, it's, it's really, really pretty incredible. Um, especially when they tear a helicopter down to like it's bare bones. And then like a month later, it's all back together. And you're kind of sitting there going like, hmm, I wonder if that's actually going to turn on or if it's really going to fly. And then they designate you, hey, we need a test guy to go out there and test the plane. You're like, uh, shit. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> Put it all back together. You're like, damn it. There's more. Oh, yeah. More you, you think that's funny? We do. We get like, we'll get screws. We'll be like, what hardware is this to? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's me doing any sort of work on my engine. I'm like, I shouldn't do this. It's been, it's been interesting. My dad was a mechanic. So like he rebuilt engines and like cars and stuff like that. So I had a little bit of a kind of a background to that, but my knowledge really is more. Like, motorcycles. Yeah. And we still ride motorcycles. We still do. I still have one down here and my dad's got, I think he still has five, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like the mechanical side of it, I think is, you know, I always think you said something earlier that kind of struck me. The fact that you were going back into the studio and the fact that you were like learning more, like kind of relearning and like going back to and like discovering kind of uh, the process. That's, I think the biggest thing about the, the, the mechanical maintenance world that I see, you know, it takes a lot of work, you know? So I've been in doing this for 13 years. So my expertise really comes from the fact that I've been doing it. It's kind of like a, like in a regular electrician's journeyman's experience, you know, I'm, I don't personally think I'm at a master's level, especially changing airframes. I, I really have very little experience on this, on the plane that I'm on now or on the helicopter I'm on now, but you see those guys that you have to pause. You have to go back into the books. Like you have to go learn something. When someone's talking about something or, or electricity is not working the way it's supposed to, you have to like open the book and be like, you know, I have to look at this theory again. Why isn't it doing this? Like how much is like, what's supposed to be here? You know? Um, and I think the people that do that, that take that pause and like go back, those are the ones that are like, oh, that's the guy I want doing this. Any, any top, any project that it is, no matter what kind of work you're doing, I think it's, it's the people that actually stop and go back and like try to learn something more about it or trying to remind themselves about it. Because I mean, look at, especially like the digital age that we live in now where things change every day, oh, yeah. you know, you have some new technology or some new way of doing something. So, so I, I think that's the biggest takeaway that I see is kind of all the moving pieces that come together and kind of that breadth of knowledge from the top to the bottom, you know, everybody has to put into it. So. 
Hell yeah. I like it. Um, that's great, man. Thanks for that. No problem. I don't know if it helped answer the question at all. Cause I was like, as you asked me and I was sitting there going like, I don't know if I've, I feel like maintenance wise, I've never done anything cool. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. It's, it's the sort of thing where you're, it's like running the mill for you every day and everyone else is like, holy shit, this is. Yeah. I think being away from station, that's actually the funny stuff when you break a helicopter in the middle of nowhere. I will. Okay. One quick story and you can do whatever you want with this. Yeah. This I just remembered. So when I was in Sitka, you know, it's, Southeast Alaska, it's an island, Baranoff Island. Um, there's only 8,000 people that live in Sitka itself. Um, it's the, there's only like 14 miles of paved road. It's very small, it's very beautiful. Um, rains a ton, like rains more than anywhere else I've ever been in my life, um, but a cool spot. And it's an island, so there's no, there's a runway, you know, airport, but there's no way to get on and off the island without either flying or taking a boat. Um, and so for that reason, it's very isolating. So there's lots of islands all around it and stuff. and we would train everywhere and we had a helicopter basically have an emergency maintenance issue and had to land on one of the islands away from the airport and they shut down and they, they had a, it was an electrical problem essentially. And they were like, okay, well we're done. Like we're, we can't leave until this is fixed. Like we're not going to get like it was grounded. So I get a phone call in the afternoon and me and a buddy and they call us up and they're just like, Hey, grab your gear. You're going to camp out on an Island for the night. You know, you got to fix this helicopter. <laughs> so we fly out there they pick up the other crew, we wave goodbye, and then they just fly away and leave us. And we're out there with the helicopter, two of us by ourselves, and we have to go do this thing. We were completely by ourselves. There was an FAA, like they, they work one of the radar towers and happens to be on this island. So they came and actually picked us up. Funny enough, I'm pretty sure the guy got stuck in the mud, like trying to pick us up. Like we told him not to come, like keep coming where we were, we would walk to him, but he ended up getting stuck in the mud with the truck. And I'm pretty sure like, cause his work day was already over. I'm pretty sure he was like hammered. <laughs> so they had to call like the guy in the, in the, the, uh, in the big uh, dozer to like come pull the truck, like see for a truck out of thing. And we had to go down to their hut where like kind of they live and, and during their time, like they spent a couple weeks at a time out there. And then we had to go drive down to this remote part of the Island. No one's on this Island. There were like four people on this Island, you know, and, uh, in the middle of the night, pouring rain, helicopters pouring, we have to turn everything on, we have to turn, we don't have any generators, so we have to actually turn the helicopter on, you have to light off uh, the APU, which is the auxiliary power unit, which is essentially a jet engine that you have to light off, and we're pulling, like, pouring rain, we're, like, checking wires, waters, like, comes in, like, getting wet on everything, <laughs> you know, we're, like, yeah, so uh, we spent the night working on this helicopter in the middle and you know nowhere no no lights no ambient lights no nothing like flashlights and headlamps and uh that was probably the one of the more memorable ones because i think by the time we finished everything and replaced the piece that we had we ended up uh going back to the to the hooch as they called it and crashed out for the night but it was uh it was entertaining that that's probably I, that was probably the most remote one i had i had a couple remote ones in alaska but that was that was a pretty funny one yeah, that's like somebody, you know, their car breaking down on the side of the road in a rainstorm. Like, that's that story on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> that was a hundred. <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, can someone just tow us home? Uh, that'd be fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to switch gears to the uh, question section of the podcast. So, uh, yeah, don't, don't think too much. Just, just say what comes through. Sully... What advice would you give to a younger you? I'm thinking like 10 to 15 years old. I think the biggest thing right off the top of my head, don't second guess everything. You know, um, 
I found that especially later in life, you were always trying to find, I was always trying to find that perfect answer to something, whatever it may be, whether it was like school or test or uh, girlfriend or, you know, whatever life thing may have been going on. Um, and I think because I was always so locked on as to like, oh, well, what's next? Or is this right? Or, you know, is this fit? I think I missed out kind of what we talked about, like that being present, you know, that, that you missed that. And being the reflective person I am and you know you sometimes sit there and you go did did I really fully get to experience that with that person or were there different paths that have taken me on so don't second guess just go like give it a shot like uh take that risk you know don't be scared you know I think I think I was always pretty good at not being scared but there is that things where you kind of hold yourself back because you're just like is this the right choice you know oh. so you know yeah, that's like the flip side of not being scared, of being courageous enough to go forward. Yeah. But then you're like, am I going forward in the right direction? Right. 100%. 100%. And I looked at that and I've seen that in multiple cases for me, like even just in the military, like thinking about getting out after 10 years because that was kind of the make or break. Like, am I going to stay for a career? Because like I'm staying for a career now, you know, um, um, or, or not, or doing something different. You know, I've seen it in... Uh, the relationships, uh, uh, you know, just always, you, you think that there's supposed to be a right answer for everything. And there's really not, there's just kind of the journey, I think is more important, I think to remember. So and that's, I think that's come with old age and wisdom at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, thing, man. <laughs> um, who was one of your major influences? This could be one person or a group or a team. Ooh. Sorry, hold on. I've got my wife calling me. Anyway. We'll be sure. done in a couple minutes. Yeah, exactly. Um, God, uh, I've had a lot. I've had a lot of uh, things. I, I get a lot of inspiration and like from, you know, outside people that have done really interesting things with their lives. Um, you look at, uh, just as an example, like Pat Tillman, the story behind Pat Tillman, I don't know if you know much about him. Um, God, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, an incredible person that she is. Um, you hear about, you know, certain things, uh, you know, gosh, uh, uh, Mr. Rogers, for goodness sake, you know, like, you know, I mean, just those kinds of things. To then the very truth of, you know, my parents, you know, I look at my parents when my mom's and my mom just retired. She's 70 something years old, 71, 71, 71. And uh, she's had this incredible life of doing all these, indiv all these different types of jobs. And she's incredibly well-educated um, to my dad, who's, you know, still working, <laughs> you know, still like, I don't know if he's like, I'm not sure if that ever man's ever going to stop like doing stuff. Um, but I will say this because we've kind of consistent with the, the line of, of influences of kind of like where I am now. There was a, uh, a friend of mine's father, uh, he was, uh, he went to West Point, he was an army ranger, uh, really incredible, pretty incredible guy, like, and then on top of that, he became a, after he got done with the military, he became a doctor, uh, went on to become a radiologist, and uh, he's, he's kind of that dad that's, you know, you want to hang out with all the time because he's playing video games and like, you know, he, he's like, you know, climbing trees and taking care of horses and like just knowledgeable about all sorts of stuff, super down to earth and like just, you know, just cool. I went and got a, a, a doctorate or a master's in creative writing, fiction writing, because he loved writing fiction, like or sci-fi stories, I think, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, this is just do this, just done some really cool things. And I was, um, I was sitting with him at dinner years ago 
And I was, I was after college. I was trying to figure out kind of what I was doing next. I was living in New York and I went to visit my friends and, and uh, we were sitting at dinner and he asked me a very benign question. Hey, how you doing? Like what's going on? And so I'm filling him in and stuff like that. And I'm kind of rambling on about the random jobs I'm doing and not really happy. And, you know, and just kind of not really sure, no direction, you know, rudderless. I have no idea where I'm going. And, uh, and I said, Oh, you know, guy, I should just, give it all up and join the coast guard and become a rescue helicopter pilot or something like that. You know, and I said something very off, off the cuff, kind of like that. And he just was sitting there and chewing his food and he looks at me and he goes, well, why don't you? And I was floored. <laughs> no, I do the simplest reaction. No one, my parents, no one had ever said that thing to me when I made this comment. And I just, I remembered like stopping dead in my tracks and just being like, I have no idea. And he was just like, yeah. And he was somebody who I respected. And he, the fact that he took the time to ask me and then took this time to be like, well, why don't you just so matter of factly, um, blew my mind. And, uh, I think it was like, uh, so I, I think this dinner happened on like a Friday night or a Saturday night and Monday morning I called the Coast Guard and I went to the recruiting station and I started the process to join the Coast Guard. Yeah. Nice. I mean, so I think influence wise, somebody who's influenced my life, you know, and it, and it it wasn't like this guy's a cool guy in general. And it wasn't like I've had tons of interactions with him since we, I've still gotten to meet him and see him a few times over the years and stuff. And he's still a great guy, but, uh, but he's probably in one sense had the most influence of like a direction of like where my life went off to. Dude, great answer. And that was what I was going for. And you, you, it, it was cool. Cause the answer sort of like bubbled to the surface through your answer. That was cool. All right, I got two more here. Next one is, uh, what would you say your why is? Ooh. Why do you do what you do? Why are you who you are? Why do you make the decisions you make? Stupidity sometimes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> uh, no. Um, well, I think what we started this conversation on, I think one of the biggest reasons that I am who I am is because... Um, I personally love the team aspect of life. Like I think that we're in this as a village togetherness. Um, you see kind of the craziness of the world, you know, in the last, you know, couple of years, decade, whatever. Um, everything from world issues to political issues to, you know, everything. And I, and I see the individualism is not a bad thing that people, people to be individual, but I think we're so much more successful as a human beings, as a human race when we have a team, you know, and we're, when we're doing things out of goodness for each other, as opposed to for ourselves. And, um, you know, that's something that is definitely changed since I was a kid, but I think that fundamentally at the core of who I am is, is that team aspect. You know, I loved being part of the soccer team. I loved being a part of the hockey team. I love being part of the military because, you know, even on the worst days, you know, I'm with great friends and I'm, I'm striving towards something better than myself, I hope. Um, you know, and, uh, so I think that that's kind of, my why. Um, I think that's my biggest why. I think when I was younger, man, and the first kind of 10 years I was in the military and I was single and I wasn't, you know, I, I was just dating and I was having a good time. and It was just me. Like I had a blast and I did so many cool things and I got to travel around and I had all the great toys and I got to do everything. And so it was me. It was kind of a selfish me, you know, on top of the why of being bigger than me. <laughs> um, but I think the second biggest why for me is now like my family. Like I think of like my wife and, and, what that means. It's my parents even like part of that. Like my parents are getting older and, and retiring. And I think about like, I'm so excited that they've moved back to Colorado. 
because I'm excited to go back to Colorado. Like my ultimate goal is to, to go home to Colorado. I've spent my entire life, you know, my high school, since high school away from home. Um, which was, I, I, I wouldn't change that for the world because it gave me experiences and, and opened up my eyes to things that I never would have experienced and, and thought of and helped, I think, shape me to hopefully be better, though I've made plenty of mistakes along the way. Um, but, uh, but I love that wise kind of family is the second, is the second part of that. Dude, Sully, you're on a hero's journey. <laughs> travel around the world, bring all that wisdom back home in the end. God, I hope so. Go back to the village. I love it. All right, last question here. What's your definition of art? I was thinking about this a lot since you reached out to me and said this, because you kind of talked about briefly kind of what we were talking about. And, and um, you asked me, like, in, I think in one of the early questions, like, what do I nerd out about? And um, like right now I'm really into kind of like the cyber world and like, you know, seeing how digitally connected and what that means for our information and how much money there is, you know, passing in our digital information and stuff like that. And so I geek out about that for sure. Um, but I think art, like what is art has always been like that elusive question. Cause it's like one of those things that like, I, I don't always know it, but when I see it, I can tell you. Um, and it's easy to, to see, art it's easy to see your murals and be like that's art it's easy to see poems and, and be, that's art it's easy to see a great novel or a movie or a play or um broadway or whatever it is um but i think the one thing that's most consistent in that no matter what is the thing that that makes you pause and inspires you we watched a lot of disney movies at this house and there is frozen of course gets played multiple times a day um and maybe not multiple times a day but it happens and there's this song in Frozen 2, and I don't even know the name of it. And it's, uh, uh, was it, I can never say her, Menzel, Adina Menzel is the actress, I think the singer, the actress that does Elsa. I should get points for knowing that. Um, and she does this song and it's incredible. It's just, the, no matter how many times I've seen this movie, and it's a lot there's this point in the song where she's singing and she's singing with another actress, I think uh, Rachel Evans or Evan Rachel's or whatever. Uh, and it gives me goosebumps. Like I literally like, Oh, like it just the notes, the music, everything hits me, you know, and it's, it's yes, music is art and things like that. But it's funny how often that strikes me is like art when you see that happen. And like that, that I've had that experience in multiple things. I have that experience when I see a helicopter pick off the ground and I fly. Like, how is that thing? Like, how does a 60, you know, anybody who doesn't know what a 60 is, go Google it. And you look at that picture and you're like, that thing does not fly. Like, that is the clunkiest looking thing I've ever seen in my life. And you see that thing pick up and it blows my mind. <laughs> what it does and it takes off. You know, you see the stories, you read the legends of the stories of the Coast Guard rescues uh, from different helicopters over throughout the years. Um, you know, and it's, 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 that's, I mean, that's art. There's a certain, somebody created that. And I think kind of at the root of art is creation. Um, I think there are those that are just much better at it <laughs> than others. But, um, but I think right now it's those, it's that I'm always like, what's art to me is like, I need that something that's going to make me go oh, like that tingle. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's a film, a book, a, you know, a, a music, a song, you know, the kind of things we call art or it's whether it's like the helicopter picking up off the ground or, or you see the layout of a jet engine, and you're like, wow, who came up with that idea? Or, um, or you just see the landscape. You know, I, I've flown in places and seen things uh, in Alaska 
you know, that it's just like you, that's art. Like no one created that, you know, the heavens created that or earth created that, whatever you want to, whoever your God, your deity is, and you want to call it, did that. But I mean, there's just something beauty, just absolutely majestic in those things that you see to even landing. I remember flying over in Boston, like when I was in Cape Cod and you would fly through Boston. There was just a beauty of like, I loved flying through Boston. I loved landing on the mass general pad. And this was really cool. You would land on the mass general pad, which is the major hospital in Boston, one of the major hospitals in Boston. And it was an elevated pad because Boston's a major city. And so there's no place, they don't have like helipads on the ground anywhere. So you're sitting there and so you have this pad here and then you have the rest of the building like is like going up here. And so you're landing right in this pad, right next, right next to this building. And these, these, the windows are all mirrored windows. So you just see yourself coming in and landing and there's a big helicopter in these mirror windows and you're just like, depending on what side you're on, you can just stare at yourself as you come in from the landing. (laughs) (laughs) So is that art? Yeah, sure. I loved it. So, so I think that's, I think it's, it's what gets your heart going. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Nerding out, nerding out. Knock that one out of the park, brother. Well done. Um, Awesome. Sully. Well, this is part of the podcast where I thank my guest. I very much appreciate you coming on. Uh, It's just been so much fun going through life, you know, knowing that you're out there, we connect, we go off for like seven years and we reconnect and have fun, go out to the bars in San Diego and then like haven't seen you for years and it's all back. And it's just so cool. You know, I think that that's one of the best things of being given the gift of getting older is that we get to like go through life with all these different people and like see, you know, kind of ex- their experiences and, and, uh, you're, you're a fucking gem out there <laughs> you as a person. So thanks. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for being on. Um, Dude, this has been, it's been phenomenal. I really appreciate it. And I agree with you. It's been, it's, it's great. Like getting to see your friends, like, and how they grow and what they're doing their adventures. So, yeah. If anyone has any questions for you, is there anywhere that they can get like connect with you? Do you want to do yeah. that? Or no, or? Sure, please do. You can uh, you can hit me up uh, at my personal email. You can myireland20 at gmail.com. My Ireland. So M Y <laughs> Ireland like the country <laughs> two zero. I have a I have a, a real one that I like give out business wise, but I th- I feel like that one is just not as fun as the My Ireland twenty. Um, but yeah, hit me up if you guys have questions or want to reach out or old friends that I haven't talked to them in forever. It'd be great to it'd be great to catch up with anybody. So perfect awesome well all right uh what i want from you is uh one last bit of wisdom for the people on the spot what do you got if you have a microphone and you can tell the world something what are you going to say laugh more find a reason to laugh every day i think that's the i think that's like we especially 2020 if there's any motto that 2020 needs is you got to laugh more when I saw the other weekend that a hurricane, another hurricane was forming and heading our direction, I just laughed. I mean, what are you, you going to do at that point? Um, you know, uh, it's good for the soul. You know, we don't do it enough. You get caught up, things get too serious. You worry about money, you worry about family, you worry about kids, sickness, disasters, whatever it is. At the end of the day, we're on a great adventure and the adventure only happens when everything goes wrong. And God, 2020 has been just going wrong since day one. So you might as well laugh and just keep going because it'll be it'll be forever remembered as you know the dumpster fire year and uh, and uh, why not yeah, next the next couple of years are gonna be like easy compared to this you know as long as things like smooth out we're all gonna be like fuck that was easy <laughs> like, so laugh more I think I think that's a good reminder for myself not to take things so seriously love it man all right Sully thank you thank you.
All right, cheers. Later, buddy. All right, my friends, that was Mr. Sully. What'd you guys think? Pretty good guy. Would you let him work on your on your helicopter? Would you let him work on your car or on your motorcycle? I would. I would trust that guy. I would also trust him on a soccer field. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked about it many times, but we had some fun back in the day. And it was crazy because Sully was like a full-grown adult while a lot of us were just kids on this soccer field. There was one game where he played goalie and he came out to get a ball. It was like a bouncing ball, you know, going over the top, coming into his zone, into the 18 box. He went out to get it. He grabbed the ball, held it in tight. And this kid, it was like a collision with him and the forward for the other team. And I'm pretty sure the kid just bounced off of him and maybe broke his leg. We had to have the... Like the ambulance came and drove on the field and it was, it was a a thing, but that's why Sully was geared up to go into hockey. He was really well set up for hockey and lacrosse as a high school uh, player and a college player, which led into his career, Um, taking helicopters out into the middle of the ocean in Alaska, like a freaking hero that he is. So yeah. Hope this uh, hope this was entertaining for you. I hope this was inspiring for you. I love to listen to these podcasts. I, li- I re-listen to them, make sure they're all good when I'm making art. And uh, that's my intention for you guys to listen to it when you're making your art or driving to work or doing whatever it is that you do where you, where you get your inspiration. I hope this adds to it. So lots of love to you. Hope you're doing good things in the world. I know you are. All these people that we're connected with are moving and shaking. There's a lot of good stuff going on in the world as well as all the bad stuff. Don't forget that. That's something good to keep in mind. So cheers to you.